0: So it's the last time I get to say this in a long time. If you have your Bible, you can open up the book of Matthew. We'll be in the book of Matthew. If it's your first time with us, or maybe you haven't been here in a long time, we've been going through the book of Matthew, and I counted yesterday. Um, I think it's our 90th sermon in the book of Matthew. We're going to finish on sermon 90. So um, we're not going to know what to do anymore, but we are in Matthew. As Jordan said, uh, last week was Easter, and so... We looked at the resurrection in the first half of the chapter of 28. And now the second half of the chapter, we're going to look at, okay, now that we've heard about the resurrection, what what do we do? What, what are we as Christians supposed to do with that information? So <coughs> I'm going to pray and then we will uh, we'll jump in to Matthew 28. Uh, although I will be reading in 1 Corinthians 15 to start off with. So if you want to put a finger in First Corinthians 15, we'll, we'll start with that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that through all the kind of crazy things that we've dealt with this morning, that those things really, when we come to this particular time, are insignificant. That when we look at your word, that as we try to understand um, what it is that you said to us and how it should change our lives, God, I, I pray that you would come now and move in our hearts and move in our minds. And cause us to hear and see the things that you're asking us to do in this particular text. <coughs> and Lord, that because of it, people would cross over from death to life. That you would use us to literally change people's eternalities. We love you, God, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, in the video you saw there... What we were trying to or what we really liked about it was that it was turning the tables, if you will, or changing some of the mindset of the way evangelism or telling people about Jesus has happened. So uh, especially in America over the last 300 years with the Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, and even some of the Billy Graham Crusades um, in and in a modernity and where there was a, a firm belief, at least, in the institution of the church they were good and they had good intentions and they did good things and uh, even 300 years ago maybe they were the centerpiece of even some of the culture in smaller cities. You can invite someone to come to church and there was an implicit belief within them that what they were hearing was true and likely an invitation would be something that would cause them to come to know Christ. Uh, What we really liked about the video is today in postmodern society where the globe has gotten smaller because of the internet and truth is more, in some terms, relative to people, though it's not relative. Truth is not relative. It, it is absolute. People believe in somewhat of it being um, relative. And so because of that, our methods of trying to tell people uh, how to become a Christian has has to change. It can't just be, just be, hey, come and hear and and get saved in our service. But instead, as it's supposed to be in Matthew 28, because that particular time period was maybe more like ours. Um, What I liked about the video is it really pushes us out of our comfort zones and says, oh yeah, the Great Commission is ours and we're supposed to go and make disciples. The way that people are going to come to know Christ is not just by an invitation to hear somebody with a face mic. Instead, I'm going to go and I'm going to live out my faith and tell them about Jesus. And so that's what we're hoping that you were seeing in the video is a uh, kind of a... A reshaping of your method of instead of come see, now go get. That we want you as believers in Christ to go get people and lead them to Christ. Although it still happens in the service. It does still happen in the service and we praise God for that. So what I want to do then, <coughs> as we've really over the book, uh, over the book of uh, Matthew seen Jesus' life and specifically over the last nine, ten weeks, the, the very end of his life, his, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And this, we've seen over a kind of a longer period of time, 10 weeks, the, the gospel itself, the good news itself of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection um, un, be unfolded in our eyes. What I want to do is go to First Corinthians 15 and let Paul help us see that that's what he calls the gospel. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. That's the gospel story. And then we're going to look at Matthew 28 and kind of ask ourselves, what are we going to do with that? Let's look at Matthew, I'm sorry, First Corinthians chapter 15. And I'm going to start with the gospel here today. And I know you're thinking, oh, great, that's what he always does. Um, Yeah, but also, like, I I believe in that. I believe believe we should start with the gospel always because it's the foundation. It's the reason why it's the fuel for how we're going to do everything. It's the motivation. It's literally everything is the gospel. So let's look at this. Now, uh, I'm just going to read the first five verses. Now, brothers, now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Just a side note, but it's interesting, right, that he's, wanting to make sure that brothers know the gospel. He wants to make sure Christians know the gospel. And you think, well, Christians should know the gospel. Why is he wanting to do that? Because there's never a time where Christians don't need to be reminded of the gospel, the good news, that Christ came and died for your sins, that your sins are forgiven and that you are completely forgiven of your sins. And now you can stand before Christ completely justified. Anyway, and I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, and which you received. In which you stand. So we believed and trust of the gospel. I'm standing in the gospel. And by which I'm being saved. Notice that verb tense. I'm being saved. So it's, it's a present but also continual. It's not that I was. Uh, it's not that I'll also just in the future. But it's I'm being saved along. In which you are being saved. And notice this. If you hold fast to the word. That's the gospel that I preach to you. Unless you believe. That believe in the Greek is pistis. That's faith. That's belief. That's what we would say is saving faith. But it says, look at this, unless you believed in vain. So there is certainly a way to believe in vain. There's believing in Jesus, that he just kind of is a guy that existed, and maybe he did those things. That's believing in vain. And then there's salvific, or saving faith. So we, we don't want to get those confused. Saying, I believe in God. Well, great. James 3 says the angels do and shudder. So we want to know that there's, there's a belief that saves. And so unless you believed in vain, therefore, if I believe, I'm going to receive, I'm going to stand, and I'm going to hold on, And I'm going to be saved because I'm holding on to that gospel that I preach. I'm going to continually believe that. Continually believe that. And then it says, for, Paul says, for I delivered of you of first importance what I also received, that gospel. And here it is. He's going to tell you the gospel. You want to know what the gospel is? Here it is. What's the good news? It's that thing we've been talking about really in a big kind of 30,000 foot view in Matthew 26 and 27 and 28. And he, he succincts it down here in two verses, if that's a word. Um, Christ died for our sins Jesus really died and the reason why he died is because we're sinners and we were not able to be forgiven but he forgave us of our sins because he died because of our sins because he was perfect Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures it was told of old and in the old testament and now it's coming to truth and fruition in Christ that he was buried not only was he buried that he was raised we know all those three key Three things are quite uh, key to the gospel that he died, that he was buried, and then he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He says it twice because it's very important that it's in accordance with the scriptures. That's the gospel. That's the gospel story. That's the objective truths of the good news of Jesus. Those things. And then after that, it says, and that he appeared to Cephas, that, that's Peter, um, and that and then to the twelve. And then he appeared more, to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of who have fallen asleep uh, most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep, and that means that they're that are dead. So we know that um, in this, we can see that there's the gospel message. This is uh, kind of a big, quick shot of the gospel story of which we've been studying now in Matthew. I wanted to set that as our foundation so we knew what we're saying when we're saying this gospel story. When we're saying, what are we going to do with this gospel story? And we're going to see some different things that people do. I wanted us to know, what is it? It's that Christ was... Um, dead for our sins, that he was buried and that he was raised again according to the Scriptures for us. So now that now that he's raised, he's defeated Satan's sin and death and we know in our own lives since he's done it, in our own lives, Satan's sin and death is defeated and there's nothing now that keeps us from a perfect relationship with God. Now, sure, we still work out sanctification but the fact is that's the gospel that we, we have seen Christ's life, his death, his burial and resurrection and that's our message. What are we going to do with that great gospel story? Well, in this particular set of verses, we're going to see kind of three different options. So I want to read it to you, and then we're, we're, going, to, we're going to look at all three of them. And I'm, I'm, I'm a little strange, so I'm going to go out of order. But that's okay. We're, we're going to do it intentionally out of order. So let's read it. Matthew 28, we're going to read the whole text, 11 through 20. And while they were going, behold, some of the guard went to the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled the elders and taken counsel, they gave sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and, and said, Tell people his disciples came at night and stole away and stole him away while we were still asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and they did as they were directed. And this has been the story. And this story has been spread among the Jews till this day. And now the eleven disciples went to Galilee. Now, Jesus told them to do that. It said in verse 20, Go to tell my brothers to go to Galilee. In verse 10. Um, And said, now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So this is he ends that with the Great Commission, this this commission or this thing that he wants us to do. And so as we look at that large text there, um, what I want to do is I want you to see three different things, three different ways people handle this gospel story. And we're going to go out of order. That's okay, though. It's no big deal. Um, so first, what I want you to do is I want you to zoom into uh, with me to verse 16. So here's the first option of that great gospel story that we saw in First Corinthians chapter 15. What are we going to do with the gospel story? What are we going to do with this truth? The objective truth that Jesus Christ came, he died, he was buried, and he was raised to life. That message changes everything for everybody. What are we going to do with it? Verse 16, it says, here's the first one that people do. The eleven disciples went to Galilee, and let's just say that's a simple act of obedience. They told him, Jesus told them, In verse 10, to go to Galilee. And so they say, okay, you told me to do that. But the reason why you told me to do that is because you want me to meet there. And the reason why I'm going to obey it is because I have this core now, foundational belief, the disciples say, that you are who you say you are. Because I'm looking at you and you're alive and you're dead. So based on that belief of who you said you are, I'm going to go now. And I'm going to go to Galilee because you told me to. Their belief of Jesus being who he actually said he was caused an obedient action in their own life. And we can stop and just ask that very same question. Because Jesus literally is who he says he is, are you going to have these acts of obedience as well? He the belief caused the obedient action. Are we going to do the same thing? Now look, and they went to the Gal they went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and they saw him, they saw Christ, they worshipped him, but some <laughs> doubted. You read that and you're like how is that even possible? I mean, he's standing there back alive. He doesn't look the same. People are literally looking at the resurrected Jesus. And they're like, I don't know. Kind of looks the same to me. So you're looking at that. And if you read just verse 16 and 17, just those two verses, you might think, is just this the 11 disciples? Just the inner 11? Because Judas, you know, he's, he's gone into his own place, as it says in Acts one twenty-five. So like, is it just the 11? Literally, the closest people are, are some are doubting. I don't think it's just the 11. If you look back at verse uh, 10, Jesus said to them, do not be afraid, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they'll see me. We looked, I, I kind of talked about this uh, the last couple of weeks, but a lot of commentators say it's not just the 11 disciples, but it's also likely the Marys that were there that found Jesus, the first witnesses, and some of the other people as well. Charles Spurgeon actually says that this particular time where all these people were, were gathered together on Mount Galilee, remember I just read in 1 Corinthians 15, I think it was verse 5, where it said, and he appeared to Cephas, and then some the disciples, and then 500 more. Spurgeon says that this particular gathering at Galilee was probably all 500. And so you've got a bunch of people there, I believe that's the case. A lot of people are there, and then what happens is, the disciples are confronted. All these people, and by disciples, I mean people that followed Jesus around for three years. So you've got a big group of them. And in that group, what happens is, some worship, and then it says, but some doubted. Some doubted. So they're confronted with the resurrected king. They're confronted with the great gospel story. And what do some people do with it? The second thing, and I know it's out of order, some people will doubt the gospel story. Some people will doubt the gospel story. We certainly also see that today. Whenever whenever we tell people, Christ Jesus was a real man. He was also God. He was dead. He was buried. And he was resurrected. When some people hear that, there will be... Doubters. Now, there's, there's one of three things I think that we can do, and I'm going to show you all three here in the text. But the second one is some will doubt the gospel story. Now, let me go ahead and make one little caveat here. If you're not in Christ, if you're not a believer, and you say, yeah, I'm not, I'm not a Christian, and I'm a skeptic, I want you to know that everybody that's not a believer and that is a skeptic, you're absolutely welcome to come here and question all day long. I'm not. I'm not speaking to you saying you're just going to doubt. We want you here. We want you who are skeptics who are trying to really wrestle with these. And I would admit it, amazing claims. We want you here. And for those of you that are believers, we want you to believe. Be, be, try it again. Be bringing. That's tough for me sometimes, y'all. Uh, alliteration's tough. Like bring your non-believing friends here. Bling, ah, bring people that are skeptics. That don't know Christ here. I'm, I'm really messed up today. Um, so, want you to bring people that don't know Christ, that are skeptics here. Bring them. Like, it's absolutely okay because we have such a belief in this Bible and such a belief that the Spirit will come. And as we preach from this Bible, Jack and I and whoever else, week after week, we we trust in this this book that the skeptics' questions will be answered. They just will be answered. And so we, the skeptics don't scare us. Like. Not that we're like, look at us, like, look at the Bible. It's awesome. And it will answer those questions. And so if you're a skeptic, we're glad you're here. If you've no friends that are skeptics, bring them. That's absolutely okay. But here we have people, disciples likely that followed him, the brothers, as they're called, at least in verse 10, confronted with the great gospel story, the resurrected Christ. And what do some do? They doubt. And I'm just going to ask, is that going to be you? Are you going to be the doubters? Notice the contrast that Matthew points for us there. If you're going to be a doubter, you're one. But the opposite of doubt is worship. But some worship. And so we're looking at this and we're saying, all right, what do some people do? Some people doubt. That's what they do with the gospel story. And the contrast of that is worshipers. Now let's go back up to um, 11 through 15. So what are you going to do? Some of you might just doubt the gospel story. I just don't think that's true. I mean dead people coming back to life that's like as crazy as i don't know virgin women having babies right i mean that's 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 part of the story too right so you hear that and you're like okay um that just doesn't sound i'm gonna doubt that if if you're in christ i want you to say i want you to see that as not a valid option let's look at the first one and I think this this first option happens quite a bit, especially in our in our society as well. This is Matthew in verses eleven through fifteen, um, writing <clears throat> to people who are Jewish. Uh, we know that this book of of Matthew is written to people who are Jews. Let, let's just remind ourselves. So, after the resurrection happened, like Jesus literally in this moment ascended back up into the skies, like in front of them, and like okay, Jesus just literally like went back up into into the sky. Wow. And then they, the church went on, and the story kind of was perpetuated, as it says in verse 15. The story has been spread among the Jews. Jesus' body was just stolen. And so, about at least 30 years later, Matthew is getting older, and he's wanting to write a book. He's wanting to write a story about what he saw. And he knows, as, as he's, you know, many years later, he knows that the stolen body theory has been what's been perpetuated among the Jewish people. And so, in this particular section, as he's finished really the whole book, over and over and over, showing that uh, Jesus is the man that fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies. As he's finishing, he's wanting to write an apologetic argument for them to say the stolen body theory is absolutely not true. That's what he's doing right here in this particular set of verses. He's writing to them saying, that lie that's probably been going on for 30 years isn't true. The stolen body theory isn't true. Look at it. It says, and while they were going, behold, some of the guard went to the city and told the chief priests, All that had been taken, all that had taken place. Um, The guards, by the way, I know you probably have heard it many times. There was guards in front of the the tomb and they were likely Roman soldiers. They weren't Roman soldiers, I don't think. I think they were Jewish soldiers, not Roman soldiers. Um, I I gave some reasons last week. I'll give you some more right here. They're right in the text. Who's the first report? The guards go to who? The chief priests. (laughs) Why would Roman soldiers go to the chief priests? They'd go to Pilate. They go to the chief priests, and it says, and when they had assembled with the elders. So we have the the Jewish police soldiers um, who were at the tomb. We know that especially because in verse 65 of 27, Pilate said, you have your guard of soldiers. You go make it as secure as you can. I'm not sending my men to go guard a dead person. Dead people don't move. And so anyway, back over to the story, verse 12. And when they had assembled the elders and taken counsel, how are we going to keep these soldiers quiet? Oh, I know bribery. That's what we'll do. Um, that doesn't happen anymore ever, right? They gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples, Jesus' disciples came by night and stole the body while you were sleeping. That would have never happened in Roman soldiers. Like, If Roman soldiers fell asleep um, and the body got stolen. They would just c- kill themselves. <laughs> they wouldn't be like staying awake. Say, let's cook up a story. They would just take their knives and like end it because they know Pilate was going to do it, or swords. So that's another reason. And it says, and if this comes to the governor's ears here in that little place, we see a cover story happening so that the governor Pilate doesn't hear about it. So this is clearly just the Jews trying to keep the story from Pilate. So those soldiers were were um, were Jewish, and they're trying to just make the story stay in Jewish world that. The, the disciples came, they just stole the body by night. They paid off the Jewish soldiers to, to keep it. And so that's why the story has been perpetuated for at least these 40 years. And so Matthew hears this and he's like, this is just not right. This, this story isn't true. So it says, so they took the money, they did as they were directed. This story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So Matthew hears that and he says, you're trying to change the gospel story and it's not true. So I'm writing an apologetic argument showing you what actually happened. They were bribed and Jesus really did come back. So, the second one, which is really the first. What are we gonna do with the gospel story? That that second one that we saw is there's some gonna doubt, and this one is some people are gonna change it. They're gonna change it. They're gonna be confronted with the resurrected Christ. They're gonna be confronted with the fact that um he really was dead, he really was buried, and he really was resurrected, and we hear that and it's like we've got to change that. <laughs> That's just too crazy. And that certainly happens today, right? The gospel message—it's—it's it's not palatable, and so we need to change it. Things like sin, telling people that you're a, they're a sinner, gen, generally isn't received well, right? You're you're a, I'm a sinner, but you're a sinner, and because you're a sinner, you've willfully chosen to sin against God. You you wanted it, and because of that, you've separated yourself from God completely, and First. Second Corinthians one says that when you tell or two, it says when you tell people that that message that they're a sinner and that they they are now destined for hell forever. Unless something happens, literally Jesus comes and dies on the cross. It's the only thing that can happen. You will go to hell now. That's not a palatable message. No one likes that. And when they hear that, the Bible says that for those that are being saved, it's the aroma to life. But for those that aren't being saved, it says it's the aroma of death. And so when you breathe or you, you tell this message, you bring the aroma of death to them. And generally, that's not a good message. right? They don't like that. So what's our reaction to that then? Because we want to be liked. We want to have friends. We want them to still like us. And when they hear that, they say, I don't like your message. I don't like your judgmental heart. I don't like any of those things you say. Okay, I want you to like me. So what I'm going to do is change the message. I'm going to make it a little more palatable. Or I'm going to fill in the blank of whatever sinful thing we might do or stretching thing we might do because the gospel message is, when we're confronted with it, is not all that great sometimes for people that are perishing. So there's two options, right? The first one is, we might just doubt it. It doesn't sound right. I mean, coming back to life, I just don't believe that. Or the second one is, well, I believe it, but when I tell people, they think I'm crazy, and so I'm just going to change it some. I'm going to shave off maybe the rough ends make it a little more smooth for everybody so that it fits into their worldview and they'll still like me and I don't have to tell them they're a sinner or I don't have to tell them they're going to go to hell forever or I don't have to tell them God's wrath is on them or if you say the gospel, but all of God's wrath was put on Jesus and you don't have to receive it. You can just trust Christ and they say, I don't like, um, we shave off the part. If you believe in that, then now you have to be a disciple of Jesus. Now you have to follow him showing the Showing that the evidence of what's happened is that he really is your highest treasure. And you can't just keep living the way you want to. Instead, Jesus calls the shots. I want to shave that part off. We changed the message. This is all that's the gospel. Those are the tendencies to doubt or to change. Now, here's the thing. There's only one other thing I see in the text. One other thing that we can do with the gospel story. But there's a fourth reality that's happening. It's not in the text, but here's what I think the fourth reality is. Is this. We believe it, but what happens is we just don't do anything. We just just don't ever do anything. Like, we don't change it because we believe it. We don't doubt it. We think it's true, but we don't do that third option. When we're confronted with the gospel text, we're confronted with the gospel message. We just believe it, and we live the rest of our lives in cruise control. No one comes to know Christ through us. Here's the third one. There's only three options in this text. Change the gospel story, doubt the gospel story or verse 17. This is what Jesus says you're supposed to do with the gospel story. And it says, and Jesus came to heaven and said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. We can just stop there. So the third option is this. Some will go tell the gospel story. Some will go tell the gospel story. Let's be clear. There is no biblical category for not changing it, not doubting it, believing it, and not telling. There's no biblical category for that. It's, this message has so radically changed me. I can't get over the fact that Jesus has saved me. Therefore, I don't doubt it. I'm not going to change it. The third option, and the only third presentation here is, go tell people and make disciples. Make disciples, make disciples, evangelize, tell people about Jesus. But if we're honest, like we don't, we don't necessarily fit. And I I would say this, if we find ourselves in the fourth one, I don't know how that's really not doubting it. That's not how it's not doubting it. Because if we really believe this message changes lives, then we would tell people. And I think the doubt is that we just don't believe this message really changes lives. And maybe it hasn't really changed yours. Maybe. To the degree that should, at least. Spurgeon, as he's um, bringing us in his commentary to the hill of Galilee, and he, Jesus looks out and he says to them with all of his authority, Spurgeon notes this. Spurgeon loves the letter G in this quote. He says, what a contrast was in this scene in Galilee compared to the groans of Gethsemane and the gloom of Golgotha. And I just add, now we have the gonus of, of Galilee, right? We have, we've got the, uh, the goness of Galilee, dash. N-E-S-S. So we we see that there's a there's a simple message here that we're supposed to have. Now, here's what I want to do. I, I've done that first kind of three questions and I want it to just kind of loom over our heads as we're going to look at the Great Commission. We're going to go into verses 18 through 20. We're going to see some specifics and let it kind of let us understand exactly everything Jesus is asking and everything Jesus is telling us in the Great Commission. But I want those three options to loom over your head as we're doing it. You, what are you going to do with this gospel story? You're going to just change it, and make it more palatable? You're going to doubt it? Or are you going to go tell it? Those are our choices, as believers. So let's look at it then. Let's understand it as best as we can in its completion. First thing, as you look at it, you'll notice that there's four alls, four all's in there. So <clears throat> it's used in the Great Commission. Jesus is being quite, no pun intended all-encompassing, he's wanting to reach as far out to everything that he possibly can and put the arms out and grab everything that he can, all, 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 all these things. And so I'll show them to you. You have the first one there in verse 18, all authority. You have the second one there in verse 19, all nations. You have the third one there in verse 20, all that I've commanded. And you have the fourth one there in verse 20, always. Uh, where it says always. It's not in the English, but it's literally all the days in, in the greek it's literally all the days Pasa tas hemeras all the days so there's four alls in there and so what we're seeing is all authority has been given to Jesus now Jesus has established his authority and Matthew has shown it to us over and over and over in the book of Matthew if you remember in chapter 7 verse 29 right as he's finishing the, the sermon on the mount it says that the people as they heard him preach the sermon on the mount were just utterly astounded and amazed because this man spoke with such authority. And he's saying, all the authority that can possibly exist in heaven and on earth. And let's just, let's just say, that's every bit of it. Like, there's nothing else. And we, what about Mars? Well, you know, whatever. There's nothing there, right? There's no authority in Mars. It's just a, well, there's a little machine there, right? That we sent. But there's no authority there. All the authority is in heaven and earth. And he says, all the authority that can possibly exist in heaven and on earth. Has been given to me. Jesus says that. So that's quite all encompassing. That's a lot of authority. If I were going to never see you again in my life. And I knew without question. This is going to be the last time I'm ever going to see you. And I've got an opportunity to tell you something. I would want your heart to just be as open and minded. And want to be excited to hear everything. Whatever you're going to tell me for it, I'm really going to listen. And I'm really going to take to heart. This is Jesus, and he knows last time he's ever going to speak to his disciples before he literally goes, ascends into heaven in front of them. So this is, without question, one of the most important things that he's left us to do. And he's saying, all the authority in heaven and on earth. Calvin says the authority, the reason why he uses heaven and earth is because um, the authority that he has on earth is to regenerate hearts and cause them to believe in Christ. And the authority that he has in heaven is that he'll have... We'll all be worshiping him eternally forever in heaven. So all the authority is reminding us of the gospel even in that. And he says all the authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus by God the Father. All of it. And he says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. That's the second one. All the ethne. That that nations is in the Greek ethne. Ethnic groups. Go make disciples of every ethnic group. Let's just remember. We put on our thinking caps here. Imagine how this is hitting this book written to Jews. Hey, people who are Jewish, who've always just had your own one religion, you you are the people of Israel. I want you now to go make disciples of everybody that's not just Jewish, but all the ethnic groups. It's pretty amazing. Again, the all-encompassing nature of this commission is amazing. He has all authority, and now he's telling the Jews who've always just been the people of God, A whole lot more people that aren't like you can be a part of the people of God. As a matter of fact, every single ethnic group that's ever going to be created needs to be a part of this. And then he tells them um, that he wants them to go baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're going to come back to that. Teaching them, and it says to observe all that I have commanded. So we don't pick and choose portions. We don't grab the verses we like and then tuck away and black out the verses we don't like, right? I don't like that commandment. Blackout. I like that one highlight you know those are the ones I want that's not how it works like it's all all the commands all the commands he wants us to observe them and then the best part I'm going to be with you all the days I mean this is just an amazing promise all the days you're alive until the very end of the age until Christ comes back I'm going to be with you so this we've seen here some amazing beautiful things As he uses this all-encompassing word, all, trying to help us understand. As he's standing there on the mountain and he tells them these things, John Stott says, the fundamental basis of all Christian missionary enterprise begins with this uh, great commission of Jesus Christ. And he says, all authority has been given to me. I want you to go, therefore. Now, the go is interesting. This go is kind of like when we hear it, we think, go, okay, I got to get on the plane And fly to the third world country. And go to Djibouti Africa. Or some place I've never even heard of. And that's what it means to go. It literally just means as you're going. As you're going through life. As you're going to class. As you're going home. As you're going to the restaurant. As you're going through every single small little detail in your entire life. As you're going, as you're going. As you're doing everything that you would normally do throughout your entire day. Because God has disciples in every inch of the corner. Basically. So. It's fine for you to do it in your inch of the corner. He may call people to other inches, which is great. But as you're going through this life, right now where you are in college or young married or about to be married or in your job or in your young family or in your old family or whatever, as you're going through life, therefore, I want you to make disciples. This is your prime objective. Spurgeon says this was the great commission he gave them and it's the great commission that he's giving us as well. This is our commission As well. It's not the great suggestion. Like I really hope you get this done guys. It's the great commission. It's a commandment. It's it's in the imperative. You need to go do this. So what I want to do then. Is look at the three things. That we're supposed to do in the great commission. Um, One of the commentators. I think it was either Spurgeon or Boyce. He called it the great parenthetical. Perpetual. He said the great Perpetual permission or or commission the perpetual great commission so that means it's always going for every generation it's always going we'll never finish it but we're always absolutely a part of it we're all a part of the perpetual great commission every single one of us are continually supposed to be a part of making disciples so let's look at this of what we're supposed to do look at it, it says go therefore and here it is make disciples of all nations The first thing that the Great Commission tells us, the first imperative, first verb that's being used, at least, is go make disciples. This is exactly what you think it is. Literally, go do the work of evangelism. Go tell people the gospel. The the gospel. What we just read in 1 Corinthians 15. The death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. Go make disciples. Now, I know there's a teaching aspect. We're getting to that. But... To begin with, in order to do the teaching aspect of Christians, they have to, this is not rocket science, become a Christian. We have to do the work of evangelism. It says, go make disciples. If you're a believer, I, could, I think I can say this pretty emphatically. This is your primary job, your primary objective on earth. Your dad, your mom, your student whatever. You're all those things. But your primary objective is to make disciples. While being a good father. While being a good mother. While being a good student. While being a good employee. While being whatever you do. So let's just ask this. Now, this is a provocative question. And I've written it on purpose provocatively. Not to make you mad, which it might. Um, Not to sting you, which it might. Um, And not to be uh, labeled a legalist, which it might feel legalistic. And if you've known me any particular time, you know that I, I don't like legalism at all, right? So let's just ask the provocative question, all right? The one thing that he tells us to do right before he leaves is make disciples. So let's just put it out there. I, I want this to jar you a little bit. If, you, if you're a Christian or been a Christian for a while, how many disciples have you made? How many have you made? Why do we not like that question? It's too personal, it's too legalistic, because God says, "Fud, not me. What I did here, and let's just be sure, I tried to use the exact language of the verse. I tried to use the exact language of the verse. Go make disciples. That's what God wants me to do. Okay, so as the pastor, I'm just asking this question. How many disciples have you made them? Not to beat you up. I love you. What if I did this? What if I rephrased it a little bit? I think that this makes it a little bit better. I like it a little bit better because I like you to like me. And that's my problem, right? So here's one. <laughs> Instead of saying, how many disciples have you made? What if I said it this way? How many disciples are you making? That switches a little bit, right? That takes a little bit pressure off because it makes it more about what I need to do Makes it less about what God does. God saves. I understand that. But it also kind of gives it a little bit better understanding, which is it's not just evangelism, but it's also the teaching part. And so I'm making a disciple. I'm meeting with them. I'm hanging out with them, And I, I am doing that. But I, I got a few that are friends that are not believers that I'm trying to make a disciple of. But now that I'm really going to start doing it because you asked me that question. Ugh. So like I asked that question not to make you mad, but to jar you just a little bit to, to think about this. If it's the one thing that he absolutely, it's the prime objective that he wants us to do. And when we hear that, if the answer is zero, I think we're over there in cruise control. And that fourth option, that's not a biblical category. And I know, I know, when we get to the end of our life and we're looking back at how we've lived our life as believers. And we're looking at all the times we could have or should have or would have shared our faith. We don't want to look back and say, I'm 85, I'm whatever old I am, and I've not made a disciple. Not even attempted. Not even shared the gospel once. Not ever done any evangelism. I, I know none of us want that. As we get to the end and we look back. So when we look on this side of our life, when we're 20, 30, 40, 50. And we're looking at the remaining years that are left and we hear this. That's what I want to be saying, which is I've made disciples. Then you have to put plans in place and be obedient to those things along the way. Or when you get to the end, you'll look back and you'll have all these regrets that you didn't make disciples. And I would say this fourth category, you're just really guilty of that second one when you're confronted with a gospel story. I just doubt its power. I really just doubt its power. I doubt that it can save. It's totally untrue, right? Because you're saved. That's a lot of power. You have a hard heart. I do too. So let's just admit, that's a lot of power to save this hard heart, right? So it has power. It has lots of power. You should never doubt the power that it has. So the first thing that we're supposed to do is make disciples. As they become a disciple, the second thing that's supposed to happen is this. We're supposed to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Baptize them. Baptism is a public confession. It's an outward expression of an inward change. The going down in the water is saying, I was dead in Christ, and now that I put my faith in Jesus, I come up. I I preached a whole sermon on baptism. I think I preached a couple of them. You can find that on iTunes. I'm not going to unpack baptism right now. But I will say this. We have a baptism on May the 18th, one month from now. And if you've noticed... What I try to do here at Remney is anybody that's instrumental in leading someone to faith, uh, whenever we do the baptism, they get in the water with me and we baptize them together. And that's not just just a sentimental thing for them. It is, but it's also so that when you see that and you see them baptized and you're thinking, and I say something like, hey, this person was instrumental and used by God to this person coming to faith. I always kind of say something like, don't you want to get in here? (laughs) Don't you want to be... Standing here with me and saying, God used me to save this person. I'm Whoa. Like It's a challenge that when you see that, you're like, I want to get in the water. I want to be in there baptizing somebody. Listen, that's not selfish. I don't think it's obedient to this verse. Go make disciples in baptism. Okay, well, that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to make a disciple, evangelize and come to faith and then baptize them. And this isn't some selfish act. Well, I just want to baptize people because, you know. Baptism is something I think is awesome. Oh, it is awesome, but you're being obedient to this. So we got a baptism in May the 18th. Like, I would love it if you're in the water baptizing somebody with me. So the second thing that we're supposed to do is baptize them and watch the Trinitarian nature of the baptism, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I've unpacked baptism. I won't do any, any more on it. That's the second thing. Make disciples, baptize, and watch this, the third one there, verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The third thing that we're supposed to do is teach. Without question, Christian faith is always a teaching faith. So there's teaching them the gospel and they're confronted with it in the beginning. And after they come to know Christ, there's teaching them the faith as well and how that lives out in practice. So when I say, how many disciples are you making? It's easy for us to say, I'm making a lot of disciples because I'm teaching the baptized already now Christians about the things I know. The people that, you know that are already Christians, I'm doing a lot of hanging out with them and teaching the things I know. That's good. Not minimizing that. But you also have to evangelize. This is part of the obedience of the Great Commission, is doing the work of evangelism. So when I say, how many people have you made disciples? I'm asking that question. Teaching. Isn't it interesting, as we look at this, one of the I don't know if it was Boyce, I can't remember, I should have written down his name. He, he pointed out something that I think is great, because generally when we talk about teaching, We think about stuff that we need to know, right? All the controversial stuff like revelation and predestination and all those kinds of things. We need to talk about it. I need to teach them all these things. Look at this. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. He points out it's interesting that the teaching that we're supposed to do is not doctrine or dogma that's to be discussed and theorized about and opinions formed. Instead, the teaching that we're supposed to do are the commands that Jesus gave us because we're supposed to obey them. Which makes me think this. Jesus is more interested. He's certainly interested in doctrine. Like I'm interested. We did a whole series in the fall called Doctrine, right? So I'm not anti-doctrine whatsoever. But I'm thinking if I'm, if I'm presented, if my life structure and time is I can give myself to one or the other. Learning lots of theology or... Obeying the commands of Jesus, I think that Jesus is more interested in my holiness and my christ likeness because that 's what he says here in the Great Commission than me being able to talk ins and outs about revelation or predestination or whatever Asian you want to talk about right he's more interested in our in our our faithfulness to him and our being more like Christ and our holiness than us knowing everything I mean think of some of the saints that you know that there's some ladies that I've known growing up in my faith where I know now looking back likely they couldn't they didn't know systematic theology from a comic book right they didn't but these ladies man they knew the lord man they were holy their prayer life was extraordinary they didn't they didn't settle in their pursuit of holiness ever Maybe you know some men like that, some of your grandfathers, where you think about it, they, they, maybe they don't know a whole lot of theology now that I think about it, but they love Christ and man, they lived holy lives. That's, I think that's what we want. I think that's every one of us is what we want. And that seems to be the nature of the teaching that we're supposed to do. Exhorting people, it's not the Old Testament commands, he says, obey all that I've commanded. All that I've commanded. So when we're teaching, we don't just give them the commands, but the The knowledge of the commands is also supposed to lead into obedience to the commands, which means holiness, Christ-like living. Um, Spurgeon, as he's looking at this great commission, says, we're not to invent anything new, nor to change anything to suit the current of the age, but instead to teach the baptized believers to observe all the things whatsoever our divine king has commanded. We don't need to change anything. We don't need to doubt anything. We just need to give them, go tell the straightforward um great commission the straightforward gospel now this is this next quote is pretty amazing it's calvin and he's looking at it and he says what if believers don't take up this task what if they do that this is what he says again this this might sting a little bit he says let us learn from this particular passage that the apostleship and that just means christ follower a believer in jesus that the the christ follower is not an empty title A follower of Jesus is not just some vacated title that means nothing. He says, but instead, it's a laborious office. That means something that causes a lot of labor, lots of work. Being a Christ follower literally is a lot of work. And he says this, and that consequently, nothing is more absurd or intolerable than that this honor should be claimed by hypocrites who live like kings at their ease and disdainfully throw away themselves from the teaching and preaching of the gospel. So he finds it absurd that people would be Christians and live like kings at ease and never live out the commandment to go make disciples. You read that, did did Fudd just call me a hypocrite? A lazy hypocrite at that? No, I did not. Calvin did. Calvin called you the hypocrite, it wasn't me. And he only called it if you're not fulfilling the Great Commission. Um, I just read the quote to you because I thought it was pretty good. It convicted me. Um, that means this, as David Platt says, when we look at this particular Great Commission, he says, this is not a comfortable call for most Christians to come, be baptized, and then and sit in one location. Platt's always good for some quotes. This is what he says. The Great Commission is a costly command for every Christian to go baptize and make disciples of all nations. The commitment to Christ is a costly commitment. And when we're confronted with the great gospel message, it means, yes, we're going to have to go tell people out of obedience to Christ. And we don't know what it means for us. But it's a costly commitment. When I was in seminary, I think it was ethics class, I had a professor named Dr. Lederbach. And he said this in class. And it, such, it made such an imprint upon me, such a um, big kind of movement in my life that every time I start thinking about maybe, at least in my own life, some um, inconsistencies, I think of this. And it really helps me. So he, he formed this little statement as a math problem. And so I, I maybe I've shared this before. But you have first right here, you have your stated belief. This is what I actually believe. Jesus is God. His Bible is awesome. Uh, it, it's infallible. I'm supposed to go tell people. That's my stated belief. And then he says plus. But then you have your actual practice this is what I'm supposed to do, but this is my actual practice. What is it? Maybe it's that, maybe it's not. And it equals what you actually believe. So if I really believe this is supposed to do anything, but I don't do anything, what I actually believe is it has no power and I'm not supposed to do anything. That little equation has had such an imprint on almost everything. I mean, you, could, you could apply it to almost everything, but it's really shaped the way I think about everything. And so when we look at this, we're going to ask you to ask yourselves, who am I going to be like then? When my life is said and over and I'm looking back at my life, what do I want my life to look like in regard to the obedience to the Great Commission? Do I want to have made disciples? Notice there's no category for believing it all and just sitting on the sidelines. And don't forget this awesome promise that he finishes with. And I am with you. I am. Ego, Amy. Yahweh, God, Exodus three fourteen. Who should I say that sent me? Tell him I am sent you. I am with you. God is with you. And behold, God, Jesus Christ is with you all the days. Not a moment where he's not with you. Remember last week, whenever we were looking at Easter and I said, Um, Jesus told him, and I'm going to go before you to Galilee and I'll be waiting there. I was like, isn't this awesome whenever we know we're supposed to go tell people Jesus is already at that particular place. We don't even know, but he's there. He created all his people. He created the gospel. He's working. And it's great to know that Jesus is ahead of us doing stuff. This is even better, I think, because not only is he already there working, but he's literally with me right now too as I'm going to go share the gospel. He's everywhere. Christ is with us. Always. And as he's finished, and D.A. Carson says, this great commission, Matthew's gospel ends with the absolute expectation in the lives of believers of continued mission. There's no suggestion there. We're all supposed to be continuing in the mission, those that are believers. Now, you might be asking this question, and, and maybe it's a fair question. Um, do you really think I can do this, bud me I've got hardly any giftings. like I can barely get my shoes tied in the morning. I mean, really me, I don't know anything I, I, but I have no gifts. I have no talents I, I'm afraid of people. I'm an introvert. Let, let me let me help you see why yes is the answer. Who is Jesus talking to in this particular moment? All the people that just days before completely abandoned him. I mean, who is he choosing right now to give the Great Commission to? The people that whenever it came down to the hardest part said, this scares us. We're out of here. Everybody get away. He's doing this by himself. And they abandoned him completely. And Jesus calls those people and he says, I know you abandoned me. I know you don't feel like you're able to do this. I know you in the Hardest time, you all left me, but I still, you people who would leave Jesus, yes, I want you to do this. So when we're asking ourselves, do you really think I can, Jesus picks these guys, the very ones that ran away when he was crucified, the ones that completely abandoned him when he's dying and chooses them to start the Great Commission. So yes, as unqualified as these disciples are, who are all just fishermen and had no certain talents, yes. Yes you absolutely can come and are qualified and are absolutely a part of and invited and can do it. Without question, you can make disciples. There are people that are far smarter than us and there are people that are not as smart as us who have made disciples over the last 2,000 years. We all probably fit somewhere in that nice little mill and every single one of us absolutely can do this. You absolutely can. So here's what I want to end with. Here's our conclusion. A little bit of a challenge, um, I'm super excited about this this conclusion, and you might find it a little bit i don't know interesting but here here's the deal um, in isaiah fifty three actually fifty two thirteen through fifty three twelve you have what's known as the suffering servant prophecy. so we read this in good friday we, we read those things about the suffering servant. That he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows. All we like sheep have turned astray. God's laid upon him the iniquity of all. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. All those particular things that you kind of read in those prophecies of this suffering servant that would come and die. But it's interesting, right as the suffering servant prophecy ends in in Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 54, God starts preparing the people for something pretty amazing. As a matter of fact, what he's doing is as he tells them about the suffering servant that's going to come and die for the sins of its people. And then we know God knows that he's also going to tell them that all the ethne are going to start believing. He starts preparing the people that they should know that we're going to have to have more room. More people are coming into the family and more people have to we have to make room for them. This is how he says it. Remember, they lived in tents back then. So this is the language they use. And starting at verse two, it says he looks at them right after the suffering servant, after this guy that's going to come and take away the sins of the world. People are going to start trusting. And he looks at him and says, enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. In other words, it's an illustration. We have this little tent here, but we're all kind of crammed in and we're all at every little corner. Like we're, we're filled and more people need to come in. So what do I need to do? I need to pull up the stakes and literally enlarge it out so that people can start coming in and we fit. Enlarge the curtains and the habitations. Do not hold back all oh, of that. Do not hold back and how you will enlarge the curtain, enlarge the tent. Lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes for you will spread abroad broad to the right and to your left and your offspring will possess the nations. Interesting that it says uses the word nations, the ethne and people, the desolate cities. So he's saying, once this gospel starts coming in, people are going to start coming to the family of God and our idea of how they fit into the family is small and so we need to pull up the stakes and start taking it out and enlarging it because the family of God is going to get larger and we literally need to start making more room for them to come in. And So I look at that and I just think okay, what is it then that we need to do? If we are supposed to understand that we're supposed to be making room, for preparing the house for more room what does that look like then in your life? How can you carry on the illustration enlarge the tent in your house in your church and in your city? enlarge the tent make it bigger as a matter of fact do not hold back don't hold back on any strategies of risk taking for the cause of Christ for people being invited into the family don't hold back enlarge it what would it look like in your life if you said I'm going to enlarge my tent more people coming and that just means people coming to know Christ through you what would it look like in your own life who can come into that tent in your church or in this city? What would it look like if we just picked up the stakes and said, God, we're just going to trust you. We're taking it out. We've got a whole lot of room in here. But would you bring them now? What would it look like in your own life if you started being obedient to saying, all right, I'm going to I'm going to enlarge it. And then when I do, I'm not going to hold back. And I, he is going to spread this abroad to the right and left. And the offspring are going to start possessing the nations. I just think that's awesome great illustrative picture of what our lives are supposed to be sacrificially looking like pouring out to fulfill the great commission i don't see this option four even coming close to isaiah 54 i believe it all i'm not just going to sit and cruise no no they're at least picking up the curtains and moving the stakes So what did it look like in your own life? I know I asked the question, how many disciples have you made? But that was just to really make you do some introspection. This is the, the great commission. You have one job. Make disciples. While you're a husband. While you're a daughter. While you're a wife. While you're a college student. While you're an employee. So here's what we're going to do. And it's it's weird. And it was weird for first service, and it's going to be weird for you, but it's great. And it's different. I want you to all stand. And we're going to close in prayer. But here's how we're going to do it. We're all going to pray out loud together. We're going to look at Isaiah 54, enlarging the stakes. We're going to look at Matthew 28, going making disciples. And we're all going to pray out loud together. Now, if you absolutely can't pray out loud, okay, that's fine. But... I think it's awesome to collectively hear everybody around you starting to pray out loud. And as we're hearing out loud, we're realizing everybody in this room right now is pleading with the Lord for salvation to come. That that does a little something in my heart. Enlarge my tent, God. Let me make disciples. I want to baptize people. I'll I'll get it started. I'll do the first little five seconds. Everybody close your eyes. And then after that, when the Spirit leads Jordan, we're going to go into a time of worship. So close your eyes, I'll get it started, I'm going to turn my mic off, but I'm going to keep talking, and I want you all to just go. It's different, it's okay then. Jesus, thank you for this time. I pray God that as we look at our own life and we think about Isaiah 53.